0: .NET Rocks episode 754, recorded live Saturday, March 17th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis, and SharePoint 2010
1: with Sahil Malik. Order online now at Franklins.net. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's the Solar Geek Out Show. I like to geek out. Yeah. We have laid the groundwork for this show by first talking about electricity, mm-hmm. and then we talked about the smart grid, and now we're going to be talking about alternative energy, and solar is the most popular choice among our listeners for right. the next Geek Out Show. So, here we go. So what's the problem with solar power? Why isn't it more widespread and usable? And, uh, you know, if it's so awesome, why do we still need oil? <laughs> well,
0: you know, you can't argue with the power density of petrochemicals. That's the big thing. Yeah. You know, it- like, we don't use gasoline by accident. Gasoline's incredibly dense power-wise. Right. You, you take one cup of gasoline in a, in a cup. And light it on fire, it'll burn for almost an hour. Yeah. You take that same cup of gasoline and vaporize it into a room; mm. it's a bomb near the same strength of uh, dynamite. Like wow. it's an incredible, and it's stable at normal temperatures. Yeah. You know, works in at below freezing and almost you know up to as hot as it gets. Mm-hmm. Like gasoline's an incredibly good power source. It has
1: consequences. Just don't breathe it because it'll give you cancer.
0: Yeah, there is that. And, yeah. you know, we're destroying big tracks of the planet to get at Yeah. It, and it's got problems. No question. But you understand that that power density piece is important. Right. And when you talk about solar, the power density comes into this in a big way. The other problem, of course, is that there's lots of kinds of solar. Right. You know, the, the, the simplest solar system's uh, are just using uh sun to heat things up uh when we were traveling in Nepal uh solar uh, ovens are very popular they're just a big silver dish that concentrate sunlight onto a pot so that you can boil water with
1: it. Yeah. And, and that's true. Very, very true with camping too. They have yeah. solar showers, which yeah. are essentially just heatable buckets of water that you put up above you and let the sun warm it up. And then you rain it down on
0: yourself. And in that, in that same system, this idea of just using sunlight to heat water. I've seen systems that heat pools. I've seen s- systems that actually are used to heat and cool houses. Right. So, you know, th- that's a, one kind of solar, but I think most people think of solar as the photovoltaic. That's the, the solar cell converting sunlight directly into electricity,
1: normally DC power. Now, photovoltaic doesn't necessarily mean a particular technology. It doesn't necessarily mean there's silicon and it doesn't necessarily mean there's, you know, any kind of wafers or any other kind of process, but that just means con- electrically converting light or sunlight into electricity. Is that yeah. what that means? Photons directly to this electron energy. Okay. That's
0: the that's the concept that goes all the way back to the 20s. You know, they've been around for quite a while. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, energy being poured into them, a lot of effort going onto them. I mean, they're used in lots of different places. Yeah. You know, again, you get back to governments tend to drive this technology forward because they need them for certain things. The big one being uh, satellites.
1: Yeah. And also, speaking of governments, the government of the United States, anyway, subsidizes solar development. And not only that, but if you put solar panels on your house, you'll get money back from the government because they want solar uh, energy moving forward faster.
0: Yep. And there's there's a price to be paid for that too. I mean, there's a, a lot of interesting – lots of countries doing this. I'll actually include a link here to the EPIA market report for 2011. That's a PD, big PDF file. The EPIA is the European Photovoltaic Industry Association. So these are the guys who've really pulled a lot of data together and show that uh as of the end of 2011, there's about 67 gigawatts uh of – uh, power being generated using solar power
1: worldwide now. And that's EPIA.org. That's right. European Photovoltaic Industry Association. You know, when you, when you, you just search the news on Google News or Bing News or whatever, your favorite search engine for solar efficiency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you'd think, I guess, I guess the, the, the current, Level of efficiency is about ten to twenty percent for photovoltaic cells that you can get installed on your house today. Yeah,
0: and you and you make it very the, you know, the key point there is
1: what you can actually buy. Well, in yeah, because you would think based on all the news stories, some of which are four years old, yeah, that we're just around the corner from sixty percent efficiency, hundred percent efficiency. Like yeah. people are making crazy claims out there, but none of it's none of it seems to be purchasable.
0: Well, you get it. You you can demonstrate it in the lab, and there's a bunch of different things, different stages. You know, the way a, a photovoltaic works, you've got this initial phase of can you capture the photon, and you know how uh, how well you're aligning the photons into your lattice, and then. How effectively you actually convert that to electricity is a different issue. Right. So, you'll see these quantum dot technologies where they're talking outrageous, you know, 80, 90, 100. I think I saw 114%. Now, how, what? how
1: is that possible? Isn't 100% it? Yeah,
0: you'd think. <laughs> well, they've got uh, the, the particular article I was reading showed that they were capturing a given photon multiple times. So, ah. very uh. clever... But
1: didn't actually convert to electricity yet. And the percentage just means that percentage of the, of the photons get directly converted into electricity. That's well, not even means. converted into electricity, but just captured, captured, captured through the lattice work. All right. Right. When you get that
0: arcane, you know, they're very early on. And it means, you know, we've been doing a lot of research in this area and you start to get better at sort of filtering out. Is this a call for money? Yeah. Right? Is this a
1: laboratory saying, "Ooh, I think we've got something here. You need to fund us." Some of these experiments are done with materials that just make it too cost prohibitive to manufacture. Isn't that true?
0: Or they don't know how to manufacture them in scale. Yeah. Right? Like you know, there's a lot of different elements in there and you know, I I've come to appreciate trigger words. As soon as I see a research paper that talks about military applications, expensive I- Translate as expensive. Yeah. Right. Because there's different motivations there. You know, look at the, the satellite industry. Satellites are expensive and they use very costly solar cells because in the concern of satellites is I need a lot of electricity, but it has to be small and it has to be light. Very light because it's $10,000 a pound to orbit. Right. Right. So expensive to lift stuff up. So you care about different things where if you're looking at what you want to put on your house, you care about keeping that cost down. Right. But
1: also keeping that maintenance down. Yeah. So so I guess we have the typical or the traditional silicon wafer. And this is a good jumping off point to talk about what happened with Cylindra. Sure. You know, uh so you have the traditional silicon wafer, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I guess is kind of I don't know if it's expensive. I can't say, you know, relatively expensive. But uh, then there are these thin film solar companies like Nanosolar, yeah, that are coming out with films that, while they may not be as efficient, you know, per f- per square foot, they're certainly very cheap. So you cheaper could, to manufacture. They're also
0: flexible. Ma- so you start talking about
1: putting them on any old surface, right? So so you have those two things, and then you have the sort of concentrated photovoltaic cells, which are. Less area, but really, really uh, expensive because they capture so much light. Well, they, yeah, they, they, you're sort of doing a trade there, right? You know, normal
0: solar cells that we can buy today in quantity. So companies like, uh, um, Sun Power, you know, they're actually out there selling them. They run in the 17, 18, 19% range. Okay. And, and these are the, are flat panels and they, you know that's ideal conversion, so sun is directly over top of the photovoltaic. The photovoltaic is completely clean, which yeah. is a big issue when you actually have installations, stuff right. gets dirty and reduces its efficiency. You know that's real product you can buy today. CPV, the concentrated photovoltaics, you're starting to see efficiencies over 40%, 40 percent, 40, 45 percent, which is exciting, Wow, but at a price. A, a significant price. You know, we're talking three, four times the price of regular photovoltaics
1: for a doubling of power efficiency. All right. So who was Solyndra? What did they do? And why aren't they here now? So Solyndra got
0: famous because uh, the US government poured a fair chunk of change into making them work. Their claim to fame, their name comes from their design of creating cylinders of photo cells rather than just having them flat sheets. Hmm. So one of the big initiatives in in California is when you build a new building now, you have to paint the roof white. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that it generally will keep the building cooler because it reflects light more efficiently. Right. Well, Cylindra wanted to take advantage of that reflected light by putting solar cells on cylinders so that you had them all the way around. So Mm. in a given space, you had more solar cells and you're collecting direct sunlight as well as diffuse and reflected light from the white roofs. I see. A very clever idea but made it more expensive to manufacture.
1: All right. So the government put a whole bunch of money into them and invested in them, actually. Mm -hmm. This was one of uh, President Obama's uh, initiatives to, to invest in them. And then, so what happened in the industry that made their, that affected their bottom line? Well, the the big thing is that the Chinese got serious
0: about manufacturing solar cells and drove the price of traditional uh, 12 to 15% efficient solar panels way down, made them a lot less expensive. And when you're spending your money on solar cells, mm. you can weigh this pretty heavily, right? right? I can buy these less expensive ones, and yeah, they're not as, as efficient and generating as much power per square foot, but I've got a big roof. I've got right. lots of space. So why would I buy the more expensive ones that are denser when I can buy the less expensive ones that aren't as dense? And then that seems to be what happened is that the market got cut from underneath them. Yeah. They focused on increasing power density rather than just reducing the cost per watt. So how much did the Chinese reduce the cost of traditional
1: solar panels?
0: They cut it by almost half now. Jeez. Yeah. And it's just inexpensive manufacturing techniques and, uh, you know, very low labor costs and manufacturing in scale. They've pounded things down, Mm. which is good for the industry in one sense, although it's not advanced technology. Right. But, you know, when you're dealing with subsidized technologies like this, you start to do the math, you know, the downside to subsidization is that you just try and drive down cost. And that means generally not advancing the technology. Yeah. People don't innovate. They have no incentive. No, but at the same time, if everything just stays expensive, nobody does anything. So we're really in this interesting cash 22 of we have a technology that works and we're driving down the price on it. Meantime, there's more efficient technologies that are are sort of struggling for funding and the subsidization seems to undermine that uh, innovation.
1: Yeah. Okay, so now what about thin film solar? Is there any advance in the efficiency of, of thin film?
0: Well, everything's sort of moving forward, right? And we're we're all struggling to come up with these more efficient techniques Mm -hmm. and then really trying to figure out how to manufacture them. So, you know, most of the time when you see these announcements, they're in a laboratory. Yeah. Right? They haven't actually manufactured in quantity. They have sample levels and they're trying to figure out how to make more. What's exciting about thin film is that it's based on manufacturing techniques that are very well known. These are how a lot of uh, semiconductors are made today. So we do know how to scale those manufacturing up. And the flexibility, the size, you know, all of those things, there's a lot of compelling things about thin film.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. So you know all about the power of ASP.NET MVC. But you might be in need of some good tools to enhance your productivity. Well, our friends at Telerik just shipped the latest release of the Telerik extensions for ASP.NET MVC, 18 jQuery-based native MVC extensions. Now you can enhance productivity by remaining in control of your views without having to write all HTML, CSS, and JavaScript by hand. Did I mention that the Telerik MVC extensions are also free and open source? Plus, now you can check all MVC online demos in both ASPX and Razor views, since the extensions offer full support for ASP.NET MVC3 and the Razor view engine. Download your free copy today at telerec.com slash free MVC, And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. You mentioned quantum dot before. Yeah. Uh, this seems to be um, an area of of uh, promise in solar Technology. Can you can you tell us one more time what that's all about? So the whole thing with quantum dot is it is
0: the idea of creating uh, particles, nanoparticles of a size that lend themselves to collecting photons very efficiently, like from and multiple again, sides.
1: Is that? I'm sorry. Like from all sides rather than just one top or surface. Is that the idea? It's a, it's a little more complicated than that, but it it really
0: is about. Uh, the same way you can filter light with certain size screens to actually filter out certain colors because it's all based on wavelength. Mm-hmm. Quantum sizing gets into being able to capture photons more efficiently because sizing the particles are very exacting for capturing photons. It's a, it's a funny science, but we're getting better at it. And the side effect is this potential for collecting an awful lot of power per square foot. The downside, of course, is this is immature technology. Uh, we don't know how to convert to electricity particularly well yet. We're, there's still problems to be solved. But the potential's huge. You know, this idea that we might be actually able to paint on something that conducts electricity, that we can, you know, now every, every surface of your house. I've even seen samples of products that were transparent. So solar cells huh. you could use as windows.
1: Wow. And it, what about um, the cost of manufacturing quantum dot stuff? Is there any... Is there any particular material that's uh, rare or in or, or expensive or difficult to find? Well, you know, in general,
0: the uh, cost of commodity products, you know, whatever it may be. Look at stuff like titanium, even copper. All of these things have gone up because we're manufacturing an awful lot of stuff these days. So that's always a, a an issue. The Rare earth materials are, are an interesting challenge just because they're hard to refine. Right. So you, you start looking at stuff like yttrium and uh, selenides and so forth. They're, just ex- they're costly to refine, and so they end up
1: being expensive products. So I guess quantum dots can use this titanium dioxide semiconductor. Is that a rare material? No, not expensive. I mean, titanium is expensive, but its natural
0: state is dioxide. You have to purify it, but it's not a not a horrible thing. But is it, Is it interesting that sort of a, a relatively natural compound turns out to be a, an efficient nanoparticle that, when refined, can uh, can be used in this this particular solar application? They just got to figure
1: out how to paint it efficiently. And then I I also understand that cadmium sulfide or cadmium selenide uh the, are are involved also in quantum dot. Are those compounds readily available? They um somewhat more rare. Cadmium is pretty damn toxic.
0: We use them in batteries, uh, but uh, they you know they, this is all the same sort of problem. Right. Gallium arsenide uses arsenic, right? <laughs> <laughs> like these aren't friendly chemicals for people. You don't want to put this in your garbage.
1: Well, yeah, I, I guess they can be refined to a safe form when they're in a when they're in a solar cell, but. But I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, are we going to run out of it or uh, is it going to become too expensive to mass produce? I guess, you know, that's that's really what it comes down to is you have to have the right technology, but it also has to be affordable and manufacturable and yeah. scalable and then not to uh, threaten a, the supply of a compound that is going to run out or get consistently more expensive. I yeah. mean, that's really the golden The the thing we're looking for, isn't it? Right. We're always looking for what are the
0: commodities right now that are available in quantity and the price is relatively stable. I mean, that's what, you know, we could have a whole conversation about the commodities market itself and how you buy in advance your supply of titanium, for example, that I can actually Pre-purchase on the market. I'm going to need X many tons of titanium next six months from now. Yeah, and now a, a, a miner and refiner knows I can buy that and know I can make that sale at that price and I can make money
1: on that. So I guess before we leave the photovoltaics behind, let's. Uh, do you have any thoughts about the most promising technology or maybe company that is uh, that promises to make these things more affordable? Uh, you know, I, I can't point at any one company
0: for all of this is what, what excites me is that there is a host of companies that are in the business of manufacturing and installing solar cells for people's homes. That's good news. Yeah. Right. But there are challenges to this. You know, you know, I'm going to call back to our electricity show and smart grid show, but how do you use this electricity? Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is an interesting problem. You cover your roof in solar cells, and you say you live in California, a mm-hmm. place that where you're doing that a lot. A normal roof-size installation is going to come in at somewhere between 6,000 to maybe 12,000 watts. Yeah. Now, that's not bad. That's, a, that's not enough power for your whole house, though.
1: Yeah, but you could certainly keep, make a dedicated circuit for... An appliance or two, your say right. your hot water or your air conditioner. And, and if you're gonna do
0: hot water, you're probably better off doing thermal anyway. Yeah. Rather than doing photovoltaic. Right. But yeah, but you you know, you've learned enough from that smart grid discussion to realize, hey, how do I switch this power into my house? Right. Now one of the good things about solar power is because it's D C mm. it's easy to synchronize with the grid. Right. So anytime you're actually going to see someone selling power back to the grid where the power is probably actually going back to the grid, it's going to be solar. Or it's going to be DC. Yeah, because it's DC. Virtually mm. any, other, any power generation method besides that, anytime you spin a generator, mm. you're creating AC. Right. And so it's hard to synchronize with the grid. Mm. When you're doing chemical reactions and photovoltaic reactions, you're doing DC, and so it's easy to synchronize. Still a loss to do that conversion, but it does work. But the other side of this is, in order to generate enough electricity that you can sell it back, you know you're consuming a minuscule amount of power than what you're used to, yeah, typical two hundred amp wired house, yeah, right, you're talking about thirty kilowatts right that you probably can't generate that much solar at peak, right, and then you still get to the real issue sometimes it's night,
1: yeah, that's right, <laughs> although there are solar cells that pick up infrared. Uh, rays as well now, right? Yeah. they
0: broad There's broad frequency ones, and that helps. So in cloudy conditions or less than ideal sun conditions, right. they're still fairly efficient. They're yeah. not as efficient as your sort of traditional PVs, and they're, of course, more expensive. Right. But you get that. Sometimes it rains. Sometimes it's night. Mm-hmm. If we really wanted to go pure solar, we have to store power, and that
1: sucks. Richard, guess what time it is? must be that happy time again. Yeah, you know it. It's time to give away stuff and to a lucky member of the .net Rocks fan club today, we have two winners. Oh, cuz we have two prizes. Ah, okay, prize number 1. Prize number 1, a Telerik Ultimate Collection, $2000 monetary value, $7000 software value for free going to Robert Buchanan. Congratulations, Robert. Golf clap for you. And the second prize is a Grape City Power Suite. Which includes their three flagship products, Active Reports, Spread.net, and Active Analysis. And that's a $2,000 software value as well. So who wins this? It's Abraham Vargas. Oh, congratulations, congratulations Abraham. Golf clap Abraham. for you. Our uh, fan club is growing. We have almost 2,000 members. And if you want to get in on this free stuff action, go to .nerox.com, click on the big get free stuff graphic in the upper right-hand corner, and follow the instructions. It's free, and it's fun. And guess what?
0: At the end of the year, $5,000 worth of electronic goodness. Handpicked by the Toy
1: Boy. Indeed. And that brings us to batteries. batteries oh batteries make me cry Uh, it's just such a almost there technology
0: well look we have battery technology that works plain and simple right and in fact if you look at any actual photovoltaic installation like an off-the-grid house that's surviving on solar power or uh, you know other alternative energies they're going to have a bank of batteries and that bank of batteries is going to be lead acid yeah the oldest battery technology out there, really.
1: And, and not very efficient. Now, what about lithium ion batteries? Are they, I mean, we use lithium ion batteries now in, in cell phones and laptops yep. and in our cars. Yeah. Yeah. The Tesla. Yeah. There's
0: lots of different battery technologies. What's okay? the problem
1: with those? Are they just too expensive? They, first and
0: foremost, as soon as you get a, a, in these other technologies, they're expensive. They struggle with scale. You know, the biggest challenge that Tesla had in packing together that many lithium ion batteries is that they heat up. And when they heat up, they become less efficient. Mm. And worse still, they can burst. And you've seen these videos Mm -hmm. where laptop batteries catch on fire. Lithium is flammable in air. Yeah. Right? It's a lighter version of sodium. As soon as it's got any water vapor in contact with it, it catches fire. It's not good. Well, there's means you have to treat it very carefully. Mm -hmm. The thing that's compelling about lead acid batteries, deeply known technology. We know exactly how much power they can hold, how to discharge them, how to recharge them. They're co- almost entirely recyclable. Once the battery gets corroded and used up, you can send it to a facility where they can chemically clean the lead, separate off the acids, and rebuild the battery. It takes energy to do it, mm. but you're not—you don't need to pollute the environment with this. Mm. Um, we have solid technology for maintaining those batteries. They t- they need care and feeding. They need to be topped up. You need to deal with hydrogen discharges. Like bat- batteries are not the plug and go technology that we're used to mm-hmm. in our homes, mm-hmm. right? Power so ubiquitous it just works. When you're going to go down this path of solar cells, batteries, rectification, you know, uh, inversion into AC and so forth. There's a bunch of gear you need to own, and it costs money, and it needs to be maintained.
1: So every once in a while you hear somebody touting some sort of liquid form of energy that we can use as a storage and transportation mechanism, such as methanol. I hear a lot about methanol being a really good way to convert energy such as solar energy, into methanol and then use that either as storage, like in a battery situation, or uh, transportation. Well, and,
0: and it's important to remember that methanol is a petrochemical. Right. Right? I mean, it's it's the same family as stuff like gasoline, ethanol, and so forth. Right. Right? So it, it has its own issues. It is a carbon monoxide producer. Now, one of the interesting things about methanol particularly is that uh, in the fuel cell business, they started figuring out how to convert methanol to extract the hydrogen from it for use in a fuel cell, which controlled its carbon release. But, you know, nothing is for free. It's,
1: there's heat, there's conversion issues, and there is chemical issues. But how is methanol created and can it be created from electricity alone? Well, it, it, no. <laughs> the simple answer is no. You, right. can, you, you use electricity to use a
0: catalytic process to manufacture methanol. But, it, you know, again, nothing comes for free. You're going to use up a certain amount of stuff. You to need sort to do of
1: biomass in order to... Right. ...to create it. Yeah.
0: But, you know, the compelling part about methanol is that you can convert it from biomass. You don't have to dig it out of the ground. It handles like gasoline. It is a liquid at most conditions in the world. It's inherently stable. It's not as power-dense as gasoline. Right. And then you have these other combustion techniques. But in, in the sense of fuel cells, I and mean, we can do a whole show on fuel cells. They're one of the most frustrating technologies yeah. I know of yeah, in terms yeah, of yeah. power. But uh, I, I don't think you want to go
1: down that path. We just got to recognize that power storage has issues. All right. So let's, let's get into alternative types of batteries other than lead acid and lithium ion. What are some of the promising uh, technologies out there?
0: One of the ones you'll see a lot of interest in is lithium air. Yeah. Now, what's cool about lithium air is that it reduces the size of the battery. So you increase the power density by getting rid of uh, some of the internal chemicals needed. So they're actually using atmospheric air as the oxygen as part of the reaction.
1: And we're talking up to 10 times the energy of lithium ion batteries at the same weight. Theoretically. And twice the energy for the same volume.
0: Yeah, it's it's really exciting, except <laughs> it's really not made it out of the lab. Yeah. Uh, and the biggest thing is as soon as you're playing with atmospheric oxygen, you're playing with the atmosphere, mm. and the
1: atmosphere is full of stuff other than oxygen. Yeah, so essentially the oxygen has to work with a catalyst against the lithium ions to create energy and then has to decay back into lithium, right? Right. And so the oxygen that comes from air isn't all oxygen, which is what you're talking about. The main issue you run into with atmospherics is water
0: vapor. And remember, water and lithium don't mix. Yeah, it's not so good. So trying to manage that water vapor issue makes it very hard to maintain that battery long-term. And when you, what do you look for in a good battery, right? I want it to last, you know, at least a year or two, three, right? I don't now, want the it, ion batteries maybe 3 years we get out of
1: them. And I don't want it to
0: explode. I don't want it to explode. I don't want it to off-gas poisons. I don't I don't want it to need to be cuddled once a day, you know, like the how much maintenance do these things need? How and how long are they going to last? How many duty cycles can they do? How does their power potential uh decay over time? You no know, battery when it's newly manufactured it produces a certain number of amps, and that declines over time. I mean, this is stuff that's really well
1: known in the lead acid space. So I read an article at physorg.com, physor y s dot com about lithium uh, lithium air batteries, and the problem of recharging is a big one. So whereas a lithium ion battery can be recharged more than a hundred thousand times, a lithium air battery is like fifty to hundred times. Yikes! Yeah. So, yeah, which is fine.
0: I mean, it, there are lithium-air batteries in production now, but they're generally single-use batteries. Right. There's stuff like hearing aids. Like Often you'll see these batteries, because they're really small for the amount of power they generate. Right. Uh, if you get an alarm system, the wireless kind, mm-hmm. they'll use lithium-air batteries in it, because they last three years. Yeah. And then you just...
1: Put a new one in. As long as it doesn't rain inside your house.
0: Well, I, I mean, they're, they're <laughs> tightly handled enough. It's, it's good condition. So indoor use, short duration, you know, one-time use. You're not trying to recharge them and so forth. These batteries work. But you just recognize when we start talking about the challenge of storing electricity so that, you know, you have power at night. If you're going to run pure solar, yeah. uh, it takes up a lot of room. Uh, these technologies don't scale particularly well. Mm. Uh, and it takes care and feeding. So yeah. invariably, a solar system ultimately is going to be mixed with power from the grid, power from other alternative sources. And some kind of storage mechanism. Well, storage is not essential. You know, if, if, we, if we only use solar when, we need, when, when the sun is shining and we use other sources, then you don't have to have a storage mechanism. And I would think that because of the issues around batteries, there's strong interest in not having storage mechanisms. Yeah. Yeah. So, Carl... Yeah, Richard.
1: You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread, but now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.NET from GrapeCity Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers.
0: Should we change gears? I think we sort of pounded PV to the ground. All right, sure. I mean, I, I it, it is the big topic, and I'm I'm glad we opened with it, but... You know, when you start talking about really large scale utility scale power, not just on your house, but replacements for, for coal power plants. Yeah. There is some PV out there. So one of the largest installations out there, uh, the Germans, believe it or not. And in Germany, you don't think of as a big, you know, sun country. It's fairly far north and, you know, they've got their, uh, they, they've got weathered there too, but they have a massive ground based installations out there. Mm. Back in 2010, the Finsterwald a uh, solar park, which is in the eastern part of Germany, is this is nothing fancy. Such a simple, simple system, just a big cleared piece of land with flat solar cells lying on it. In the a that generates at peak 80 megawatts of power. Mm. Okay, that's like 15,000 homes. Like that's a pretty big. This is not a tiny little system, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's serious amounts of power, mm. but photovoltaics the you know big challenge for them you got to keep it clean right dust right they you, anything gets on those solar cells it reduces efficiency so it needs to be routinely clean but generally when you talk about utility grade power generation you don't talk about uh photovoltaic you talk about thermal okay so these are the sort of cool systems like solar one and solar two. They're, they're really neat looking because what they use is parabolic mirrors to aim sunlight at a concentrator and that constant, and it can get really hot. So depending on the system, you'll typically talk about if it's a, a, a steam based turbine system, which is, you know, think about it. Virtually every utility power you use coal, natural gas, oil, even nuclear. You're boiling water right? You try to get water up to about 600
1: degrees, you pump it through a turbine. Solar can do that too. So is there a place on the web that you can take us to see one of these plants in action? Now, there's a bunch of them. There's some in Nevada and so
0: forth. But take a look at uh, tinyurl.com slash abengoa. That's A-B-E-N-G-O-A. Okay. Now this is actually in Spain and it's brand new. Although they've been working at the site for a while, but it's a they, they've got some nice photos that really show this whole concept of uh, thermal solar collection. Yeah. As uh, so what I love is that sort of aura effect. They have all these mirrors aimed at this thermal tower, yeah, and the and the tower sort of glows. Yeah, There's so much light hitting it. Yeah, and they're actually uh, wow, nice. You, You're getting up there now. Now you're talking in the 100,
1: 200, 300 megawatt class. This is real power generation. And it looks like – so tell me the technology. Does the the heat from the light, uh, the concentrated light boil water and that runs a turbine? Is that essentially what we're talking about? Yes. That's that's sort of the classical model. There are other techniques. I've seen
0: versions that will actually uh, heat uh, uh, liquid sodium salts. Wow. So now they're getting up into the couple of thousand degrees. So use that's for using gas turbines, a little more efficient, mm-hmm. uh, but more expensive, more dangerous. Uh, but, and if you click on the, our plants link on Evan solar, you, you'll get a really nice shot of this sort of array of mirrors aimed at the tower.
1: Yeah. So, you
0: know, all South facing and there's a, a very specific uh, aspect of this design. Um, this is utility-grade power. It's pure solar. They're spinning turbines just like everything else. Very known technology. They These are getting efficient enough that they don't really need big uh, uh, feed-in tariff discounts and so forth. So they, where there's sufficient sun, these work. Yeah. They work well. Yeah, And then we get back all the way to our electricity show where this is the sort of thing they can build in Nevada – and in New Mexico, but they don't they don't actually need that much power. Right. So how do you distribute that out to the coast?
1: So now we're talking back to the back to the electricity show. We're yes. talking about how to transfer power. Efficiently, and the cheapest uh, cheapest most common way is through high tension power lines. Right. Or, and when we
0: ended the electricity show, I was talking about the Trez Amica Superstation, the ultra-high-voltage DC superconductive backbone they've been yeah. proposing building for a while. Yeah. They were citing this kind of technology as why you want that.
1: Because solar converts right into DC,
0: right? Well, in the case of these thermal plants, because they're spinning turbines... Oh, it's they're AC. AC.
1: You're right. Yeah. Right.
0: But that's fine. You convert it to DC. The main reason for that high-voltage DC backbone is that it's superconductive. There's no power loss when you transmit over distance. All uh, right. The downside, of course, is this idea of does it make sense to build huge power plants and distribute the power versus generating power locally? Yeah, and now you know go all the way back to our smart grid conversation. How do we switch power into our houses based on the different sources? And we're still solving all these problems. Okay, like it?
1: I like it. It's and it's
0: good stuff. You know, if you're going to generate electricity from utilities, this is a, a neat way to go about it. It does need care and feeding. Those mirrors need to be kept clean. Right, right, and right. they break they, they you know nothing's free does to take you know some care and feeding to make all these things work. I want to talk about one other class of of uh solar power I, and I think this is the one I, I'm talking about it because I know people are going to bring it up. uh that is uh solar power generation from space, or space-based power.
1: So here's what I know about this. I don't know if they're actually doing this, but the idea is that you you have solar collectors in space where there's um, uh, you know, a lot of solar energy yep. and a lot of space. Yeah. And uh and you beam it down to Earth through a microwave link. Right? Which is great, although you don't want to get near it. Yeah, you don't want to miss. You don't want to miss. Yeah. Right and you can't fly around it you can't go near it you'll be how should we say vaporized well possibly i mean
0: it's it's interesting to think about exactly how you know, what microwaves are going to do uh what it we might do to f- birds in flight oh yeah now then microwaves not the only technology uh eads which is the company behind uh the ariane space program so mm-hmm, forth that's mm-hmm. the european space uh technology eads Is actually got a research project going right now to do space based power using infrared lasers. Okay. Now, let's first off, before we talk about the technical issues per se, what's compelling about space based power? Absolutely huge space. Yes. Lots of room up there, lots of solar energy up there, also mobile. Yeah. Right? So if you need to put power somewhere where there isn't power, rather than running power lines, you can just move it in. See, think about, uh, a disaster like Katrina, being able to position a satellite over to generate power so that you have electricity on hand. Yes. Or really isolated areas. So you're up in the far north of Canada or in Siberia or the middle of nowhere in the uh, the uh desert. Mm-hmm. You can bring in power. In fact, one of the things I believe the primary driver for space-based power will be military. Sure. The military needs an awful lot of power. If you look at how much money the U.S. government is spending shipping in stuff like gasoline to Afghanistan. Oh, it's it's horrendous. It's not even just, you know, just the supplies. So the idea that they could position a satellite over near one of their bases to generate the power that that base will need. Yeah. And you start switching over things to electrical power, right? Now electric cars make perfect sense because the power is handy. So... Uh, I I do think the military is going to drive forward space based power generation technologies, and and ultimately that upfront expense, and this is big because lifting stuff into space is very very expensive. Yeah. So an awful lot, if you research space based power, they'll quickly get into
1: we need to manufacture the stuff in space. Although it's getting cheaper with SpaceX and and all of these guys getting into the getting into the competitive space area. But here's another way that you can get it down, and we haven't really talked about this. The the tether.
0: The, oh, in terms of yeah, that's a whole other the
1: cable that stretches to the sky. Well, which, that's yeah, space elevator, space elevator. Yeah, well, they thought about a space elevator as getting stuff up there, but just a tether, a a, a big long honking cable. Yep, is that even possible? Yes. Uh
0: we now uh, for a long time. I mean, Arthur C. Clarke described this. I like I said, I always thought that guy was an alien from the future. <laughs> Because he he you know predicted the existence of of geostationary satellites right. twenty years before it could be done on and on and on and he described exactly how a, a space elevator is cable running from the planet planet up to orbit would work and the fact that you could run vehicles up and down it mm. and you could transmit power down it as well if you wanted yeah right the problem is at the time and up until recently they had to be made of a material known as unobtainium yeah. <laughs> So, it's so much tension, so much stress, that nothing is strong enough. You know, titanium's not strong enough. And the things that are
1: strong enough won't conduct electricity.
0: Well, even you know, there's one part is load-bearing, and the other part is what you can strap to it as well. But remember, every time you add anything to it, it adds weight. Right. And weight is the issue here. But, you know, the recent advances in nanoscale technology, carbon, filaments, and so forth, have actually produced material strong enough that it's in realms, almost double the minimum strength required to build a tether of that nature. So it could be done. The question is, you know, what's the most cost-effective and practical way to go about it? So tethers one approach, microwave transmission is another approach. I mean, as much as we're concerned about, you know, what happens with that beaming that energy down there, these are known things. You can add a, a, an argon laser to it, so there'll be a green beam stay away from the green beam. Yeah, you don't want to get there. But also the late, you know, that doesn't have to be a high power laser, it just has to be enough power that it can be seen and it also is an alignment marker. As soon as that green beam isn't perfectly in place, the microwave's cut off. So there's lots of ways to to deal with this issue of the danger of transmission the big problem here is that lifting enough mass to create have enough solar cells up there to actually have this make sense i mean they're right now they're talking about demonstration solutions in the 20 kilowatt range i mean that's barely enough power for your house right so we're a ways away from generating enough power in that form to make any sense but you can see the motivation to develop it And the big thing is ultimately going to be manufacturing in space. Can we get to a point where we're manufacturing the solar cells involved on the moon surface, where there's one-sixth of gravity, and lifting that off to orbit is cheap in comparison, right? Or we actually are going to an asteroid and mining that asteroid to do the manufacture of these things, and we can bring the asteroid into orbit to do the manufacturing from it. Mm. That's where you start reducing costs. Don't put stuff down the gravity well of Earth that you don't need to, and don't lift up what you don't need to lift up. But I would point out, none of that technology exists right now. We do not actually know how to manufacture in space.
1: But we do know how to microwave power, don't we? Yes. So is is anybody doing this? Um, Power is microwaved all the time. I I mean from space. Uh, No.
0: Nobody's actually, that's, you know, typically when you talk about a low Earth orbit satellite, you're talking about microwaving energy over about 200, 250 miles. All right. So would we need satellites that relay in order to do we, this? We could do that, but, uh, you know, we don't have to. All right. Uh, typically, you know, geostationary orbit we'd have is 22,300 miles up. That's a long way. All right. But that's, that's able to orbit exactly over position on the planet. Okay. But, you know, we so we know how to put something there. What we don't know how to do efficiently is move it from one orbit to another efficiently. Ah. It takes a lot of energy to move things around. Once you get it there, you don't want to move it. And that can be a problem. And you know, if we're actually talking about this military solution of being able to position power where you need it, you need to be able to move the, the distance from one point of the Earth to another point of the Earth when you're 22,300 miles up is really far. It's yeah. a long way, yeah. and it takes a lot of energy to change orbits. So these, these there are lots of problems with solar uh, power from space. But I think it's a technology that's inevitable. I think we'll see it in our lifetimes, and it will be military driven.
1: Yeah. Okay. I got this tip from, um, Ed Begley Jr., who's just, you know, a huge green guy. Yep. But he says, you know, he, people ask him all the time, what should I do? Solar this and energy for my home and all this stuff. And he says, the first thing you should do is get an audit done of your house, get an yep. energy audit done so you can tell where the low hanging fruit is. Right. You know, y- it may, you may just need $10 worth of weather stripping to significantly reduce your energy bill. Yes. Uh, you may need a couple of new pieces of gear. Um, whatever it is, first do that, and then call a company that specializes in solar for the home, and because right. they will be up on the latest stuff, they'll know what is doable and what you can get and what you can't get, and they'll also know what discounts are available and and all that stuff.
0: Well, and and. You, and- the closer you are to the equator, the more power there's available to you in that form. Yeah. You know, there's a reason that California's mandating painting roofs white. Yeah. You know, that that, that might be the simplest thing if you've actually got that much sunlight around. And I'm pretty far north, so, you know, solar potential for us is substantially lower, mm. but as the costs come down, I'm looking at my roof and thinking it might be worth throwing them up there just to see what happens.
1: Well, and again, you also have uh, the opportunity to use panels that Pick up different spectrum of light so that yep. you don't always have to have the bright light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a show. I think it is. Yeah, it's always fun to talk to you about this stuff, Richard. <laughs> I always have a good time with it, and I'm glad we got another geek out done. All right, and we expect the flood of comments on our website. Please go to and uh, tell us what you think. And uh, I guess we'll see you next time on .net Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening, and remember. Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, Go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com.